This is not a review. This is an impact statement. This is Dr. Scarelove. Attention. The following may contain material deemed unsuitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. More importantly, this episode may contain spoilers. Consider yourself warned. If you have not seen the film or films featured in this episode, the Scarelove Society recommends pausing now, then returning with the stories fresh in your mind. Still here? Okay, let's open the door. There is a long history in Western literature and art of portraying men's and women's bodies not as simply genetically different, but of comparatively better and worse quality and purity. Men's bodies are often seen closed, controlled, strong. Their portrayal throughout politics, advertisements, arc and stereotypes, and most of all, film, is overwhelmingly slanted toward the image of strength. Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine, John Travolta in Greece, John Wayne in everything. Remember Tony Soprano's conception of what men should be and how they should act? On many occasions, he references the untainted image of Gary Cooper. Sorry, Gary Koopa. The strong, silent type. Men like these are in control of their emotions, their true feelings hidden behind solid veneers and uncompromising convictions. But these men are more than morally or emotionally strong. More often than not, the masculine hero is chiseled, cords of muscle running up to thick necks that held handsome faces and expressions of confidence or determination. Overweight men, men with receding hairlines, men with physical deformities, and so forth, are subjugated to villains, sidekicks, comic relief, and disheveled ex-husbands and boyfriends. On the other side of the spectrum, women's bodies are, we are told, open, rather than the closed male form. Women are uncontrollable and unpredictable. They are soft, their bodies incapable of purity in their own right. These female qualities are not merely different, but undesirable, and even constructed as monstrous. Healthy and virtuous bodies like men's keep and contain, and they perform actions that only their minds have instructed. Women's bodies, however, break the Western obsession with tidy, clean, self-controlled, predictable bodies. Women's bodies are leaky. They morph and take different shapes. Things grow within them. In 1982, John Carpenter sent 10 men into the harsh and livable winter of the Arctic. He watched and invited viewers to join in, as these men are stripped of all the comforts of Western society. Basic needs are met, food and heat and shelter but they do not have a community outside of their research station. They don't have changes of scenery, nor do they have the option of going home whenever they feel. The ease of connection with humanity is reduced to the bottleneck of a long-range radio. Their isolation is total, and their privacy is non-existent. Finally, the company of a woman or a man not stationed at Outpost 31 is a pleasure only accessed in their imaginations. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Thing from Another Planet, the first filmic adaptation of Campbell's novella Who Goes There, 
are very much metaphorical tales that represent, to many, the threat of communists among us. Who Goes There itself could be argued to be an examination of the spreading fascist plague as the novella was published, but all three of these works contain a communal human fear. Invasion. The notion that a stranger is in our midst, parading around as one of us. John Carpenter, with his remake, created an added layer of underlying dread by pushing into bodily invasion. The dread in The Thing of 1982 is decidedly corporal, rooted in bodies that fool and betray us, unnatural bodies that threaten to contaminate and degrade our own existence, as well as the future and longevity of the human race. But Carpenter did something else. He cast only men. The creation of the soft, breakable female form is not simply represented in art and literature, however. For example, many drug makers simply do not test their wares on women's bodies because their hormonal levels shift over time in unpredictable ways. From the Western, arguably heterosexist perspective, women's bodies are failed bodies. They are messy, in constant need of support and control. Masculine control, of course. If we look at it this way, the heterosexist image of men is the converse, the polar opposite. It is, whether we like it or not, justified and naturalized. It's not about privilege and power, it's just the way things are. How often are men portrayed as out of control? This is seen mostly with the realms of mental illness, where men lash out or commit heinous crimes due to the misfiring of their mental processes, and in this way, aren't always held accountable for their actions. The other, and only truly rationalized loss of control, is found in the irresistible force of sexual desire, and even this force is hard and often violent in nature. Words like taking and ravaging are often used in your favorite romance novels, alongside standards like swollen and throbbing. A recent study found that 88% of heterosexual pornographic scenes contain physical aggression directed by men toward women. These researchers found that in most scenes, the participant or target of this sexualized loss of control is shown to respond with imitations of pleasure or they simply act neutral, so it is little wonder almost all sexual assaults are committed by men. But enough with the science here. I won't assume that all of you have had experience with the viewing of pornography, but I can easily assume that most are familiar with the general structure and design of the cliché porno because it so often is portrayed or parodied in mainstream cinema. If you aren't familiar, check out Boogie Nights or Lovelace, or For a Laugh, Orgasmo. And on the subject of mainstream film, sexual encounters play out much the same. Male initiation, female submission. There are exceptions, obviously, and most of those have Michael Douglas in the male actor category, but for the most part, Hollywood and even indie filmmakers portray the same dynamic a vulnerable, either willingly or not, woman succumbing to the controlless man who is driven by instinct, and instinct alone. Think of the expression, take me, take me now. Giving is removed and instead the man takes what he wants because essentially he can't control himself. Thus, Western masculine embodiment is fundamentally contradictory. It demands strong self-control that men's bodies remain self-contained and yet, what men are told is fundamentally irresponsible is the need to penetrate and violate other bodies. Howard Hawke, with his 1953 adaptation The Thing from Another World, took liberties with Campbell's novella, much like Carpenter would, 
But in addition to making the thing a separate physical entity, he also brought a woman into the ranks. Was this for the simple romantic angle that Hollywood assumed audiences desired, or to soften the male-dominated cast with feminine features? It is telling that instead, Carpenter placed his version in an isolated Arctic research base with a group of men cloistered together in shared quarters for months on end. A friend, a U.S. Navy veteran, once remarked, 120 sailors go down on a submarine, 60 couples come up. This was obviously a joke, but it shows that, in such a claustrophobic and single-gendered environment, contradictory behaviors of the stereotypical heterosexual male image cannot help but erupt. On the surface, there is little sexual tension in the thing. The men of U.S. Outpost 31 present variations of a primarily gruff, traditional American masculinity. The lone exception, perhaps, is the character of Nalls, a young black man who moves on roller skates, dances to music as he undertakes the domestic work of cooking for the men. In one scene that could have such potential tensions, the characters of Childs and Windows lay in their darkened shared room in long underwear, bored and disinterested in each other, or the old taped television shows that no longer break the monotony of the long Arctic winter. And yet, if masculine desire is irresistible, then there lingers beneath the surface the threat of its eruption and the corruption of the closed, hardened bodies of working men. In a heterosexist conception of gender and sexuality, the natural direction of masculine sexual desire is toward its natural and receptive opposite, women. Women's bodies are naturally open and receptive to this desire, as women are not fully in control of their own bodies to begin with. Women have incomplete, failed bodies precisely by virtue of not being masculine. As famed feminist Simone de Beauvoir puts it, women are not men. On the other hand, the cohesiveness of men's ideal form is under constant threat of corruption and contamination. It is a precarious perfection that risks having holes pricked in it through a queer gaze or tricky bodies, or unwanted invasion. A recent survey asked individuals to respond to narratives of men and women, They were asked after being given randomly assigned narratives of people from four categories. They were asked after being given randomly assigned narratives of people from four categories. Gay man, straight man, gay woman, or straight woman. And each had some sort of encounter that strayed from the rigidity of the rest of their history. The study found that people, after reading these different narratives, frequently stated that men with straight sexual histories who had a same-sex encounter were not heterosexual. By contrast, straight women who had a lesbian encounter were more often still said to be straight. Gay men who had an encounter with women were more likely to be seen as bisexual or gay rather than secretly homosexual. They concluded that heterosexuality for men is a precarious status, that men who, in all but one instance, had sex with women were not really heterosexual, they were really something else. In this way, The perception, at least for men, is this. Once corrupted, always corrupted. Earlier, the character of Nalls was mentioned as being the one character to exhibit qualities that might disqualify him from being placed squarely in the straight male category. This is interesting that his outrage is the first sign that some sort of bodily boundary has been crossed. The outraged cook, who has found a pair of soiled underwear with holes ripped through the fabric in the kitchen trash, points out the violation, though the men and the viewer doesn't know what sort of violation has occurred. 
No one owns up to the underwear, and the fact that it was in the kitchen trash alludes to the idea that whatever had attacked or penetrated the victim, and thus infected him, wants this to be hidden. The viewer soon sees how the grim fate of this unknown man unfolds. The stray Norwegian dog that kickstarts the movie shows its infection once alone with the American dogs in their kennel. The imposter dog begins to shake and absorb the canines around it with wriggling tentacles that penetrate other canines. The thing's body splits, opens up from within, and spurts some unknown corrosive fluid on dogs it begins to absorb into itself, pulling them in with its slippery tentacles. The men find the thing and burn it before it can complete its task, only to be left with the realization that it has already infected one of them. One of them is a thing. One of them is not like the others. The distrust and paranoia begins to build. In a 1995 episode of The Jenny Jones Show, Scott Amadour came out to his friend Jonathan Schmitz and revealed he was sexually attracted to him. This was a banal, sensationalized example of the daytime television of the 1990s, much like Geraldo and Springer, that used cheap shock to garner and retain the attention of bored viewers. Three days after the original taping, Schmitz killed the man and argued at trial that he was angered and humiliated by the other's confession of desire, especially on live TV in front of millions of viewers. This narrative of temporary insanity brought on by proximity or implication of homosexual desire is commonly known as the gay panic defense. For some heterosexual men, the very fact that another male body could possibly direct its gaze toward their own elicits a violent response. The threat of being corrupted or penetrated needs to be violently neutralized. Further, even the notion of being penetrable is unfathomable. While this legal defense has never allowed the heteromasculine violence to go unpunished, the punishment is often lessened or reduced, which only solidifies the argument that the fear of the queer body is a very real thing. The thing in Research Outpost 31 desires all the men. It wishes to penetrate them, to turn them into something like itself. Dr. Blair, in a computer simulation as sophisticated as an early game of Pong, finds that this corruption deepens to the cellular level, once infected, it overtakes the body molecule by molecule, transforming the normal cells into alien matter that looks like normal cells. Once contaminated, the cells are attacked, copied, and resume as the old cells had. The result, a perfect copy. If we choose to see this metaphorically, there is an analogy to be found. Straight or gay, those who desire to be penetrated or to do the penetrating are indistinguishable. They look the same, they act the same, and mixed with the stereotypical conception of masculinity, this creates the paranoia and mistrust that permeates not only Outpost 31, but the majority of Western civilization. Now, to thicken the plot, another layer needs to be explored. At one point, Childs asks the group an obvious yet important question. How will they know who has been infected if it is a perfect copy? But McCready, probably the most masculine of the bunch, knows it is imperfect, that it has a flaw. The imperfection is in the blood. Childs, who will later join McCready in the closing scene, is also very much the strong take charge or no prisoners sort of man, yet he is deemed too hot-headed to lead the attack on the invader. An assertion that echoes the old racist portrayal that furthers the lack of self-control and black masculinity. Normal human blood is inert if organic, or in other words, dead. But this thing's blood is alive in its own right. Remember, this is operational corruption down to the cellular level. 
Even the cells are trying to take over and corrupt the truly perfect bodies. We're gonna draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're gonna find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. No blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. It'll crawl away from a hot needle, say. McCready's suggestion that they all prepare their own food echoes the social paranoia around the communicability of HIV. The thing is not human, and yet it could be any among them. It could be all of them. It is not a virus, but at the same time, it is. The paranoia that sets in among the men of the outpost is familiar to us. Anyone who was in school through the 1990s can attest to educational sessions where nice, educated scientists reassured us through PSAs and health classes that no, HIV could not be transmitted by sharing a water glass with an HIV-positive person. And yet, unfortunately, people still think this. During the earliest stages of the virus's emergence, the epidemic officially began in an article in Morbidity and Morality Weekly Report by the CDC that a particularly harmful strain of pneumonia had been found in five Los Angeles men. Each of these men were identified as homosexual. By the summer of 1982, these cases and other diseases were exponentially recorded in men who were otherwise healthy, all of whom were known to be gay. The cause, an immune system condition, was originally known as GRID, or Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, before the adoption of the current name, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. The damage, however, was already done, and the condition would continue to be linked to homosexual men, further entrenching the paranoia of what the queer gays threatened. In the American 80s, HIV was still called the gay cancer, and the threat of infection was misunderstood and rampant. An example of this can be found in Eddie Murphy's stand-up session, Delirious, which was released the year after Carpenter's film, which further illuminated the culture of fear. After espousing the supposed benefits of women having gay men as friends, he is quick to add that AIDS is no joke, that it is some scary shit, and husbands should be wary of wives kissing their gay friends because they might come home with AIDS on their lips. In reality, episodes of anti-gay and anti-queer violence and insult also more broadly suggest that the fear and stigma associated with HIV and AIDS was, and is, not only the disease itself, but a deeper fear of hidden queer embodiment associated with it. It is not just fear of the disease, but fear of what having the disease associates you with, and what it meant about your identity. The Thing was released June 25, 1982, only 20 days after the CDC's first epidemic announcement. The writing and filming occurred during the initial reign of a vicious, terminal virus that wasn't evident until it was too late, and, at least up to that point, was associated with predominantly men, and more specifically, men who share bodily fluids. Carpenter's masterpiece featured a group of only men, who distrusted one another, 
with the solution to their problem supposedly found in their blood. Coincidence? The paranoia of transmission is expounded in Blair's computer analysis of the projection of how the thing will spread if it gets away from the Arctic, and its goal is revealed as not simply to neutralize the threat to itself, but to corrupt the whole world. Viewers must be endlessly impressed by the power of 1980s computers, and how flexible they were in their ability to calculate incredibly specific things on amazingly vast scales. The binding thread between the bad blood and bodies that rupture the sanctity of the male form is risk, the underlying risk to that precarious masculinity from the thing that can be hidden in any of the men. The alien thing is constantly seeking to transmit its essence to normal men, but to do this it must trick the men, to get close to them, and alone with them. Only then can it put the moves on them. Once alone with the thing, it will attempt to change you, to destroy real men and replace them with something like them, but is not men. The essence of the thing is inherently corruptive, and this reflects the precarious and fragile nature of, nominally, normal flesh and bodies. In Schlitt and Westbrook's 2009 study of over 7,000 mainstream news articles covering 232 cases of murders of individuals identified in some way as transgender, the prevalence of tricky or deceptive bodies and images threatening heterosexual men was ubiquitous. In 95% of the cases of violence, heterosexual cisgender men attacked or killed a trans woman, and in no cases did a cisgendered woman commit the attack. Moreover, most of the cases were proximate to a recent, typically casual sexual encounter. In these accounts, trans women's true gender is located, by reporters, in their genitals, and the women are portrayed as gender deceivers, tricking heterosexual men into homosexual encounters, corrupting their purity and robbing them of their status. What matters for both reporters and perpetrators is not the woman's own gender identity or the men's heterosexual desire for them, but the proximity to a body with a penis, to use the author's words, and the power that body is supposedly to embody. The men of Outpost 31 are one by one tricked into going off alone, and all are potential bodily deceivers, or others masquerading as men. In the climax of the film, the three ostensibly normal men find the thing's ship, its attempt to escape from their isolated compound and spread itself across the globe. The men, convicted and determined, set explosives and destroy the ship before setting fire to the outpost. The thing then reveals its true form, but really, the truth is that the thing is no thing. It is seemingly uncontrolled matter, the faces and parts of creatures it has corrupted rip randomly from its oozing mass. McCready destroys the thing, only to find Childs amidst the dwindling fires of the demolished outpost having survived, somehow, on his own. Neither they nor we knows if either is hiding a thing, or if they are real men. When Childs asks McCready what they do now that the camp is destroyed, he simply responds, we'll just have to wait here a while and see what happens. In the end, it is unclear who or what we should be worried about, whether we should fear for one hero versus another, or if we should distrust them both. But the real dilemma lies in the interaction between the two surviving men. Are McCready or Childs really worried about a thing erupting from the other's body, or are they worried about what two men left alone in the cold might do to one another? 
The question for MacReady and Child as they stare at each other in the looming Arctic dawn is not whether or not one of them is the thing, but instead that neither man knows about themselves or the other. Or one of the men knows that it is the thing, but does not feel safe disclosing to the other for fear of violence and exposure. The assumption that queer people somehow know is perhaps endemic to the violence that meets queer desires. The other is implicated in the knowledge that the thing would know one of its own, for it knows itself, its kind. But even if they said nothing, many a queer person might privately confide that they are sure there was some thing there. The depth and violence of what we might call heteroexistential dread gives the lie to the thinness of its pretense and explains why heterosexist society demand queerness call itself out and identify itself as a thing. Because if it isn't other, if it isn't a thing, then it's us. So, what's the future for the state of gender and sexual identity, at least in America? Well, let's just see what happens kind of inevitability to the film. As it begins, you're seeing a helicopter flying, and they're chasing a dog, and already, it's, it feels like the end of the world. And that's what this is. This is an apocalyptic movie. This is the first of, of three films that I've worked on that have an apocalyptic theme. I've dealt with them in different ways. This is the end of the world. It doesn't come from bombs dropping. It comes from within. And it, it was a movie that that's tone started, and and finished and then basically it was almost there's nothing you can do because here it comes and of course the thing is a metaphor for whatever you want to say it's disease could be aids could be whatever it comes from within you it's also um basically uh the lack of trust that that's in the world now we see it all over countries people we don't trust each other anymore we don't know who to trust uh we're with somebody that that we think maybe there are loved ones and they may attack us um, and that's what the thing is it's, it has a lot of truth in it kind of dressed up as a monster movie with special guest dr oliver cowart research for this episode was conducted by dr krista marie debanke and Dr. Drew Atana, co-founders of the Scarelove Society, with invaluable assistance provided by the Library of Miskatonic University, where Dr. Scarelove's writings are housed. The Scarelove Society welcomes listener support with liking, sharing, and subscribing through iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you discover your podcasts. The Society also has a Patreon dedicated to the preservation and distribution of Dr. Scarelove's ideas. Each donation also ensures membership into the Scarelove Society itself. Every click and donation is greatly appreciated and works toward ensuring usually closed doors remain open. For more information and source material of this or any episode, please visit drscarelove.com <laughs>